welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined as I am this week by Jeremy Goldcorn, who's still out in Nashville, Tennessee, where he's enjoying the genteel comforts of the American South. Tell us, Jeremy, as a white South African with an English shiksa mother, a Jewish father, and a Chinese wife, having lived in Beijing for 20 years and now living in Tennessee, are you able to make sense of American race relations in the wake of Baltimore? <laughs> I'm not even going to try and answer that question. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, come on, no. man. Be a sport. Okay, so do, do you have an observation from the American South for, for this week for us? We yeah, I, you know, something that I noticed about a week after I was here, which is sort of an odd thing, was that they don't have front number plates in Tennessee. And at first I thought, why are all these people driving around with their number plate removed? I thought it was kind of like China where people put a CD over their number plate so that cameras couldn't stop them. Uh, but there are very few uh, traffic cameras here for one. Uh, and uh, I then discovered that there are a bunch of states, mostly in the south, which right. don't require cars to have front number plates. Ah, very, a very astute and, and wise observation that we will ponder for many weeks, I'm sure. <laughs> anyway, with me here in the studio is also David Moser, who most of you know as Modawe, who is the uh, last living patrilineal descendant of the philosopher Modza, I believe. Is that correct? That's right. I'm a believer in universal love. Right. <laughs> universal free love. He's a dedicated Moist, not a Maoist. Uh, he's also academic director of the CET program in Beijing. Also joined by Jeremiah Jenny, infamous ne'er-do-well, PhD dropout like me, and now executive director of the Hutong here in Beijing. Great to see you again, man. I prefer rogue historian. <laughs> Ronin, Ronin, masterless samurai, rogue scholar. Right. Anyway, so we have David and Jeremiah here. So I think those of you who know us know we're going to get a delving into some modern Chinese historical topics. Yeah. Damn right. Right. Well, it's, it struck me earlier this week as I was dutifully reading links off of Bill Bishop's onerous <laughs> Sinicism newsletter uh, that there were two related essays that were published pretty close together, uh, both exploring that old question of. Chinese identity. There was a Perry Link essay called uh, just simply what it means to be Chinese in the latest issue of Foreign Affairs, which is chock full of good China writing or some of it good. Uh, there was an essay also by Alistair Campbell published by the China Studies Center of the University of Sydney called Defining China's Civilization State. So I thought that these two essays and, and other things, uh, our, our good ex-intern uh, Hudson Lockett was kind enough to share some some readings with us uh, that you know we were engaged in a conversation about uh, ethnic identity, about the, the origin of various ethnonyms like Han and Hua and all this stuff. And uh, he shared some really good readings with us as well as notes that he had taken for something that he was thinking about writing on the subject. So what's the deal, guys? What, what First of all, Jeremy, what do you suppose accounts for this regular revisitation of this question and why now? Why? How does this somehow relate to Xi Jinping's project or to um, the, the, the efforts to, to resurrect uh, Confucianism or other, other um, political philosophies or worldviews? Well, I think that because it's a question that clearly isn't settled, you know, and um, many of the questions that uh, Chinese thinkers were asking themselves at the beginning of the 20th century haven't really got any further to being settled, you know. What does it mean to be Chinese and modern? Uh, how much of that is Western? You know, how do you have a government like Xi Jinping's, which uh, quite explicitly says they don't want to Westernize, but on the other hand is also based on 
a uh, political uh, system and philosophy imported from the West. Um, you know, there are all these contradictions that are absolutely unresolved. So I think as long as that continues to be the case, this question will continue to be asked both by Chinese people themselves and by foreign observers, such as the people writing the essays you mentioned. Or the people sitting around this table here in the Cynic studio. Uh, Jeremiah, I mean, I, 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 my sense is that the question is still in play because, you know, I think as a lot of people have pointed out, the, the language, the culture, the political boundaries, no two of these things are really coterminous, right? I mean, that, that seems to be the, the root of the problem here. And that, that's especially the case with the political boundaries. Um, you know, there are all sorts of other ethnonyms that we talk about, like Huaren, Zhongguoren, Zhonghua Minzu, all these, these, these things that we all translate, as we were talking about earlier, as Chinese. <laughs> and I think that confuses the debate somewhat when we write about it in English, that when we're asking questions, what does it mean to be Chinese, unless we're quite specific about our terminology, it can lead us down some roads that that can, can make understanding the differences between, say, ethnicity, political affiliation, or even you know a, a much more amorphous concept like Zhonghua Minzu, uh, you know, these things can get quite confused. Uh, one of the things I used to ask my students a lot, you know, often on the first day of class was define China. And it wasn't necessarily the idea that people would be able to do it because, as Jeremy pointed out, even within China, we've had scholars, politicians, and thinkers for better part of, you know, two centuries trying to do just that. But it's to remind people just how hard it can be. And if I if I could add that, too, that you know, as hard as my students sometimes found it to define China, I think that in China today, many people kind of think of what, what the people think of as China. It, it's often something that's been sort of fixed, either fixed in terms of ethnicity or, you know, this idea uh, in academic academia outside of China, you know, ethnicity is an unstable signifier. But in China, it's often seen as a biologically fixed notion. The same could be said, too, of, you know, this notion of what it means to be China in terms of a political entity and the reading back of that political entity, you know, into a past where, you know, what was China or what would become China wasn't necessarily what we think of it today. So uh, that's that's interesting that you say that it seems to be a problem when we write about it in English and we use the word Chinese. Um, let me just see on that one one thing. And, and yes, I mean, obviously there are scholars within China who do talk about this, but is it is this something that your ordinary, I mean, is this something that, that, that people, ordinary Chinese people, our, our friends, think of as a, a serious issue in any way? I mean, do, do do you find that this is something that Chinese people obsess about, or are they just kind of comfortable with the ambiguities, with the, the problematic nature of, of Chinese's identity? David? Well, I think it's not a matter of the average person. I think the reason that these articles are being written and that, that people are focusing on it in large part is because there's a perceived uh, threat by the government, or at least by the people who observe China, of this, these centrifugal forces splitting China apart, whether it be ethnically or, uh, you know, with the Chinese people themselves voting with their feet or going in directions that seem to denote or seem to be uh, apart or away from the, the central core notions of Chineseness. And people have noticed that the Chinese government seems to be making uh, sort of ad hoc attempts to coalesce or to to cohere the Chinese people under the under the rubric rubrics like the Confucianism that they're bringing back, and I think that's it's more a concern of 
perhaps the Chinese government and China watchers? Um, David, not just the government and China watchers. I mean, Chinese intellectuals, I think, are the people who worry most uh, about what it means to be Chinese. It's not just foreigners and the government. Um, this is a major uh, topic uh, for Chinese intellectuals. Yeah, but they're China watchers too. That's <laughs> I sort of lumped them okay. in with. with... Okay. <laughs> yeah, so intellectual sway. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, there's this tendency I've seen to, you know, as David pointed out, to raise in, in discussions about identity all these ancient political philosophies, all these, you know, um, kind of Weltanschauung constructs. Is it really useful today to continue to think about China in terms of Confucianism or legalism or ancient ideas about civilization and barbarism or or the moral and ethical superiority of China or about you know the tribute system or anything like that. is is that really relevant today or I mean this this whole notion that China is a, a civilization masquerading as a nation state as Lucian Pai once put it is that useful today or is China really just sort of another ordinary Westphalian nation state that has, you know, a few ambiguities around it, a few things that don't fit neatly into that, but that that largely, I mean, that, you know, we're, we're drawing too much attention to those 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 things that aren't, you know, coterminous and contiguous. Is that is that fair, Jeremiah? Well, you know, I, I think that a, a large part of the, the the crisis of identity, if you will, may have started when the notions of the Westphalian nation state were introduced into China in the late 19th and early 20th century by, you know, early state builders or early people or revolutionaries and, and other intellectuals who wanted to create something along the lines of a nation state as a way to protect the civilization of China. And I think at that point, you know, if, you, if you're thinking right now, well, China has, for the most part, adopted all the trappings of the Westphalian nation state. Now, whether it's a civilization state or not, I think looking back at all of those old and, and wonderful things like Confucianism or legalism or whatever else happened 2,000 years ago, I think part of it is, as, as David pointed out, is what else have you got? If your idea, and if, if we sort of argue that kind of the central thesis of modern Chinese history for the last 200 years has been, how do we build a state that is both fully modern and fully Chinese? And if that's the case, then everything that we've kind of built up as modern, we look around and it feels like it's not necessarily what it's not necessarily who we are. And then we have to sort of find things that are that make up who we are. And when and the, the challenge with that, Kaiser, is that it, it ends up looking back at, at long ago periods because there's, you know, that's the that's the stuff that for you know, for millennia has helped to help kind of define some people being Chinese. But one thing I just might add really quickly, if I could, sorry, is that part of this too is in that early 20th century, and this is something we've talked about a little bit here before, but this notion of China going from being civilization, as it were, to being one civilization among many in the early 20th century kind of, I think, exacerbated this trend because these things that we pointed to, like these old things that were pointed to before as being quintessentially part of civilization in the early 20th century started to be referred to as something that was sort of essentially Chinese civilization. It's funny that you say essentially Chinese civilization because that's what I think is going on here is a, a species of essentialism is that what, what, what is happening here is that you know, I, mean, I don't believe that these ancient arch archaic things somehow still haunt the psyche of Xi Jinping. I don't think that these things are, are, are really live. I mean, they're used instrumentally here and there. But not, I mean, they, they're not central to, I mean, I think that he 
is and 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 everyone else uh, is is quite comfortable with the idea of China being one civilization among many. It, it sure. there aren't people who still harbor some some notions about China as you know truly the the central kingdom and you know the the the, the be all and end all of all civilizational central and Xi Jinping's psyche is the tenets of Marxism, which is not Chinese at all. Right. right? right. Well, so, so, I mean, even if, if even that, I mean, even, even if that, that's yeah. even not used merely but, instrumentally, I would go go on and say, I mean. I feel like you know my Chinese friends. If you were to ask them what what is it, I mean they wouldn't maybe use the same terminology I would, but it, it basically boils down to people who speak one of a number of or people descended from those directly descended from those who lived in an area that we simply you know we call China, which is ge- you know geographically definable. It 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 is you know what some people call China proper. That is you know you may, may include Manchuria in that or, or not. Uh, but it's you know the North China Plain, the Wei River Valley, uh, the Lanzhou or the the Gansu Corridor, the um, the the Sichuan Basin, the uh, you know the South, as it were, you know, all all to, to, to roughly it's 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 modern borders stripped of Inner Mongolia, uh, Xinjiang, and 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 Xizang, Tibet, uh, people who. Like I said, speak one of those languages, come from there, and then have a couple of you know phenotypical characteristics in common, which are like basically a range of hair that is it's mostly black, kind of brownish black, and mostly straight, and they have the epicanthic eye fold and a range of skin tones from I don't know you know ochre to whatever <laughs> burnt sienna or whatever crayon Yellow. colors you want. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, is there is there anything so strange about? Is it is it harder to define than French? Is it harder to define well, than Spanish? Is it harder? Except that Xi Jinping would reject your definition. Well, of course he would. I mean, he and, would, and, he and, would. The, and the part of it, and that's the part of the issue, is that while Xi Jinping probably doesn't stay awake at night worrying about these things, he comes out of a ideological intellectual tradition whose forerunners definitely worried about these things, right. and kind of set in many ways this this trap for later generations. To you know how we de- how we end up defining China is kind of trapped by these anxieties that were very much a part of the early 20th century. I mean, Dave. Well, that's even earlier than that, right? Okay, like, like when did you know in the in the time of Yan Fu or or slightly later of Liang Xichao, or Kang Youwei, Liang Xichao, what were the intellectual currents of the day when it came to defining you know ethnicity? They were all based on what race, right? That was like that cloaked itself in the in in as, as science, and so it had a kind of appeal. It was social Darwinism. It was like Herbert Spencer. It was stuff like that, right? Well, yeah. yeah. Except that what's interesting is a lot of those ideas, which were created by Western imperialists to justify colonialism, imperialism of places like Asia, in many places in the re- the rest of the world have died out. Except that racialist logic and social Darwinism, while not necessarily espoused as ideas here. You still see vestiges of it far more so in, in just the zeitgeist than you would in a lot of other oh, sure. places. Oh, sure. Getting back to your question to Kaiser and what's in Perry Link's article is the, the example he gives, which is uh, uh, a child born of, you know, of Chinese uh, parents you know, overseas. Well, what is exact example? Yeah, he gives? Actually, I wrote yeah, it down. I think yeah. it's, it's, it's great. It's actually pretty clever. Yeah. Um, Link says he's. I think he's absolutely right when he says that despite official efforts, you know, both during the Republic and across the PRC period, to define Chinese as multi-ethnic and more inclusive, Chinese has continued to be understood implicitly as Han. Right, a Han family living in Singapore or San Francisco, for example, is regarded as Huaqiao, meaning Chinese abroad, even after several generations. But nobody would think to use that term 
to refer to a Uyghur from Xinjiang who has moved to Samarkand in Uzbekistan, right? That's right. what you're talking about. Yes, right? right. In the unlikely event that a Caucasian baby were adopted by Chinese parents and raised in China, the child would not easily be thought of by locals as Chinese. But a Han baby adopted and raised in the United States is normally regarded by both Chinese and American communities as one of us. Now, I, I think that he's right. Yeah. But I think that there's a simple, simple historical explanation for that. That is, I mean, you know, what's the outlier here? It's the United States. I mean, that is the outlier. I mean, cosmopolitanism is an entirely recent phenomenon. Mm -hmm. It's not, it should not be surprising that people have uh, in, in the rest of the world mostly antiquated ideas that, or, you know, ideas that, that don't conform to, to, you know, modern, politically correct American you know, liberal thinking about what constitutes it. Because this is, you know, we're almost the first post-national uh, post nation, right? Right, right. But, you, but he's right in, in trying to note that, that you have to observe the way people treat uh, people and the way they talk about them. Sure. Uh, how many times have you heard uh, Chinese people, at least I've heard this question many times, they say, oh, you're from America. You have lots of black people in America. What do you Americans think of them? Right, and I always think they're importing a kind of strange notion that somehow they cannot be of a you know of a different race and yet still be American. There's, right. They're making their assumptions are based on the Chinese model. Of and Han. I think that you would find that to be the case in most uh, most sort of mono ethnic nation states. Okay, but Kaiser, here's the, the the problem: why it's weird and why one of the reasons why people continue to you know worry about what it means to be Chinese is yeah, that that makes a lot of sense what you've just said. But then go back to your definition of China and the geographic de definition. You know, you talked about China proper, which essentially excludes Xinjiang and Tibet. Right. And, you know, in that de definition, you really ought to be deported right away because that is the most in, in the PRC politically incorrect de definition. Because Tibet and Xinjiang are and have always been part of China. And you will repeat that again and again and again and again and again if you go to the party school. So you you are left with this, you know, constant conflict. You know, to, Xinjiang is and always has been part of China, but Uyghurs aren't really Chinese. Right. So, no, no, so it's so not this just is so a contrast. It's always America. been part. It, it it is part of Zhongguo人民共和国. It is not part of. I mean, they are not Chinese. They are yeah, not. Right. They are not. They are not. They are. They are now Zhongguo人. They may, you know, a century ago, they may not have been considered by most Chinese to be Zhongguo人, but they were considered to be, uh, they, they weren't certainly not considered and still are not considered to be Han人 or Hua人. Mm -hmm. But they were uh, in different definitions of Zhonghua Minzu, they were definitely included. In Zhonghua Minzu? Yeah. Now, yes, because Zhonghua Minzu includes the, the minority nationalities. Right, 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 right. I think part of this too, I mean, you know, one of the other things that's been going on lately, uh, I mean, I guess of interest to only a handful of academics, but I think it's germane to what we're talking about, is some of the attacks by a few Chinese academics on what's called the New Qing history. Yes. And destabilizing or somehow being accused of disconnecting Qing from China. And the, the danger with that, of course, is that the Qing style of rule in the places that we're talking about and the Qing... The, the Manchu conquest of these regions, you know, if you disconnect that from what it means to be China or Chinese, then you start to destabilize all kinds of territorial and political notions. And so, you know, the idea is, do people, you know, as you asked, do people constantly worry about this? Is this something that people are talking about? Not really, except when something like this comes up. 
Another example would be last year with the um, little bit of angst in the state media over Gary Locke upon his leaving China. Right. So I think that's the more germane question. I mean, everybody under there's there's no nothing to be discussed further about the the, the inclusion or, or exclusion of Xinjiang and, and, and Tibet. That that's a pretty clear that's a solved problem as far as I'm concerned. It's definitely <laughs> solved, except that both of us <laughs> are probably gonna have to go outside and light our visas on fire. Right. No, no. It, it's 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 quite clear that that there's you know that, that I mean, we all understand the definition. We all understand the, the the problems with the definition. We that that's that's not that's that's a political issue. Okay, uh, what I'm I'm talking about here is a the 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 Huayan identity more. So Gary Locke or me. Okay, I am a child of the Chinese diaspora. Why is it that I feel entirely comfortable with saying I am an American and I am Chinese? And am I wrong to be able to say that? No, I think you're just acknowledging the the reality of how chi- Chinese is is talked about and perceived. I mean, you just described it perfectly. That's the subconscious. I mean, these things. When you say what is the real essence, do you mean what people actually behave as if it were, or do you mean what they consciously <laughs> define it as? Because that's and I think what Perry Link was saying and what you're saying is that you have to just give up and define it. It's like uh, I use the analogy of Jewish identity. Yeah, right? I think it's a, a pretty close Everyone one. Everyone knows what, you know, what do you mean? Are you Jewish? How, who, what, you know, who is Jewish? And I think it's the same sort of thing. It's it's not defined in the same way you define Chineseness, but it has the same kind of an intuitive set of associations. They're really quite simple at base. I take us back to the beginning of the show. Jeremy, as the son of a <laughs> of a goy, of a, of a shiksa, uh, what, what's the... Um, do you regard yourself as Jewish? Your father well, is Jewish. Well, technically, no, obviously not, uh, because my mother's not Jewish, and that's what you need if you want to obey the rules. But, I mean, but uh, culturally, you, yes. I, I grew up in a, a, a secular Jewish culture, a oh, house oh, of secular Jewish culture. So culturally, I I'm feel <laughs> very uh, comfortable with Jewish culture. Um, and, you know, I, I probably, you know, think... Uh, in many ways, think like a typical Jewish person. Oh, so God. I there, certainly look you're, like you're, a Jew. You're, so you're I mean, in some very, very... And my name is Goldcorn, so I haven't really been able to get away with being identified as a Jew. So I'm fairly comfortable with a <laughs> Jewish hyphen um, definition. Jeremiah, do you think that Jewish is, is an apt analogy to, to, to Chinese these days? Or is it a good way to help people to understand how people regard themselves? I don't know, because you're talking about a cultural identity. And I think when we talk about Chinese, especially when we talk about Chineseness in China, I think there's something that is at least interpreted as being, as you said, more essential, if not even, dare we say it, biological. Mm-hmm. And I, you were asking, you know, how can you you feel comfortable identifying yourself as American and Chinese? And there's some reasons for that. And I think one of them is also is identified is that Growing up in the cosmopolitan, as you sort of said, almost post-nation nation, mm-hmm. it, it does allow people to be to take on multiple identities right. in a way that is quite difficult here in China, or as you pointed out, in many other monocultural societies. I've had the opportunity, though, to talk to uh, other people who were born and raised in, say, European countries that are not normally countries of immigration. And they still they can identify dually as well, even though they only hold citizenship in that country because China doesn't allow dual citizenship. Uh, it seems to be more than just the the, the peculiarities of America. Although I, I certainly agree that 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 allows for it, you know, to be less fraught, easier. Well, let me turn this. I mean, think about it, though. I, I know that you and I have had conversations. There's been times when, for example, 
uh, when you've been writing or you've been talking and you've expressed a viewpoint that your critics may find to be a little too cozy with the current government. And me, yeah, <laughs> perish the thought. And uh, and I and I know that you know some of the the criticisms that I've read, you know, quite unfairly attack you in ways that would be a very race different traitor, right? than if I wrote it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that that's, you know, the expectations, and that's something that we see a lot here. And we, and we mentioned Gary Locke before, that most people in China don't care about this stuff until it rubs up against something that's quite sensitive. So if somebody like, for example, Gary Locke doesn't articulate an expected Chinese worldview or an expected understanding then somehow he has failed as a person or as a Chinese in a way that, you know, other people from other backgrounds are not necessarily expected to live up to those standards. And that's, I think, what I think a lot of people here are reacting to. You, but you raise an issue that we really should mention and flag because that's what's very important. There's a tendency to conflate whatever the Chinese government, the current Chinese government wants to define as Chineseness or, or as uh, with what, you know, Chineseness itself could be defined as is as distinct from what happened after 1949. So in the case of somebody like Gary Locke, if, if, if he's anti-CCP in some way or, or, or going against their policies, then somehow he's a traitor to the Chinese people or his Chinese roots. Which doesn't make any sense, right? Because he can. But, it, 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 but David, I mean, that's what my point was right at the beginning. Is that I mean, if you compare it with Jewish culture, you don't have, uh, you know, even the Israeli government trying to right. define what it means to be Jewish right. on a micro level. That's my. Whereas the Chinese government does try to define what it means to be right. Chinese. Often, you know, on uh, I mean, it's complete micromanagement. Yeah. Um, you know. Uh, concerts organized by the Ministry of Culture abroad, um, you know, are just one tiny example. Um, but it, 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 it occupies the entire span of Chinese cultural life where right. the government wants to be in control of the definition. And that's really different from other countries. And you can't ignore that. I mean, that's yeah. another reason why China is different. Well, I, don't want to, I wasn't ignoring it, but I mean, what I mean is it, it, it muddies the works because people subconsciously buy into it and the Chinese government is explicitly trying to co-opt it and and they're trying to make the case that they're the custodians of this 3000 years of history and if people go against them like uh, I bring up Perry Link again you know people say you know why are you anti china and he says well I'm not I love china what is that what is my opposition to this government have to do with my love for china and he, he's making the distinction between the Chinese government as right. currently I mean, it's something that's the, the, the deliberate and very useful conflation. Right? Yeah, exactly. And right. it is very deliberate. I mean, that's also part of the Leninist state in many ways is to make sure that love of country, love of party are synonymous with each other right. in China because of this essentialist notion of what it means to be Chinese and this custodial notion that you mentioned, love of part, love of country, love of party. And also this comes into ties into notions of ethnicity. And that's where we get the, you know, as you mentioned, the um, epithet like, you know, race trader, Han Jian, right. which has a history going back, you know, yeah. well to the, to the 19th century. Right. So we've, we've talked about this Perry Link piece um, a, a little bit. Um, let's talk about this Alistair Campbell piece. Um, he contends, and I'm going to quote here at some length, the Chinese conception of civilization is rooted in the strong conviction of ethnic superiority, a race nation ruled by Han Chinese, glossing over the historical assimilation of many diverse ethnic groups living between the Gobi Desert and the South China Sea, in contrast to the multi-ethnic immigration model of Western society. As Martin Jakes has pointed out, the Han identity has served as the glue which has kept a geographically and demographically vast country together. Without that shared identity, China would long ago have fallen apart. Do we agree with this? I most certainly do not. Let me just make that clear. 
I, I do not think that the Chinese concept of civilization is rooted in, it may once have been rooted in, uh, but this idea that it is rooted in a conviction of ethnic superiority or that it's a race nation ruled by Han Chinese, I, I just, I don't, I just don't buy that. I mean, doesn't that kind of require us also to, to, to deconstruct or to, 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 to take apart this notion of Han, what that is? But let's, let's, let's address this. Is this Alistair Campbell piece, is this contention just, completely nonsensical or is this is there some truth to it well i think you know historically people in china would have thought not so much in terms of we as this race and you of another race but we as civilization and you as not civilization and i think that was pretty much the case throughout most of chinese history until you started to get you know in many i guess you know really western notions of ethno-nationalism eth ethnic uh, western notions of race and ethnicity, and trying to read those back into history is a, is a very fraught project. The other thing that you mentioned, too, is, and this gets into a whole other area, but, you know, the notion of what it means to be Chinese, even if we were to take a very specific and narrow definition of Hanren, that's something that if we, you know, what it means to be Hanren or Hanzu in the 20th century does not necessarily mean it's the same thing in the Han dynasty or thereafter. And there's a, there's a famous, in one of Drew Gladney's books, he talks about how he was once at a conference and was talking about the, you know, how this was not a very, uh, ethnicity was not very stable and was talking about this specifically about Han. And, and according to this one essay, he said, uh, a woman in the crowd kind of stood up and she was quite upset. She was from China. She said, you know, what's your Han Ren? What's your Han Zhu? And she's like really like upset. Like he had just kind of taken her brain and like shaken it up a little bit because she'd never thought that this could be anything other than a set historically fixed thing, right? The idea. Let's 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 delve a little bit into what that what Han, where Han comes from. Obviously, it's an ethnonym that derives from the name of the historical dynasty, two hundred nine to what two BC to two twenty AD, with that Wang Mang interregnum from what nine to twenty five AD. But uh, yeah, so the 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 dynasty, one of the great Chinese dynasties. When did the ethnonym actually begin to be used? Let's let's go back historically. Gladney would contest that it actually was a creation of late Qing uh, Republican revolutionary types, right? That, that Han was too defined against. But I, I think that there are certainly other instances of it, which I think are pretty believably used as an ethnonym, whether ascribed by other people, by other sort of uh, non-Chinese, uh, mostly nomadic pastoralist peoples, like as far back as the Yuan dynasty, right? Where you had that, that four-tier, Right, you're all familiar with this, right? There was a four-tier kind of quasi-caste system in place. Except even then, what what we think of as Hanzu were divided into two castes. Well, they were. I mean, they were they were two castes. There there was right the there was you know the, the top the Mongolians themselves, and then the the Silmure, which I guess is for ge, 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 ge which means you know the assorted categories of people, which or the colored eye people, as some people have interpreted mu, uh, which means you know other Central Asians that could be Persians or Arabs or or Sogdians or what have you, uh, and then you had the North Chinese who had lived for a hundred years already under un, under uh, Jurchen domination, and many of them right. for even longer under Kitan domi domination, than then uh, 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 the the Manzi, which were you know the Southern barbarians, which was a pejorative term. Mm -hmm. None of this that would have been very obvious to most of the Labaixing who were living during those times. But are you saying that, that this didn't become uh, solidified into the Qing be because 
the opposite because of the Qing as being an invade an invading dynasty. I think took those distinctions and, and, unif and sort of blurred them, or what? No, I think I think part of it is that uh, Kaiser's right. If you look at like the Han Yudatsudian, or you look at any of the dictionaries, there's clearly uses of Han and Hanran that are are used to separate either us from them, or right. in some ways to denote a Absolutely. certain people. My argument before was that it was less based on necessarily race and more based on civilization. And I yeah. think what we what, sure. what I think what Gladney is arguing, and, and what you're alluding to, is this notion that. With the coming of you know ethno nationalism in the late nineteenth century, it Han then takes on the meaning of this is us as a race, yeah. uh, specifically at that time against the Manchus. That's what but I'm. Then, that's my point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Once once we all are in this together, then we become all the same. We all become brothers. Even literally. then, surely they recognized that phenotypically there were not a lot of differences between Han and Manchus. Of course, that's why they had to have the special cue, you know. I mean, right. otherwise, they, who, who, how do we know who to kick out? So, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Interesting stuff. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so I, 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 I completely agree with um, that there are plenty of usages of it that, that are clearly of nothing. I, I bet you it goes back even, I mean, to the Xianbei, to the, the Toba and the Xianbei in, in the era of division. Uh, I think there was probably quite a, a bit of consciousness of being of the Chinese civilizational civilizational sphere, right? But yeah, but I, but the the main thing, getting back to the current sense of identity, though, is is the default now is Han as being the the default Chinese, right? And everything else is they may be part of Zhong Zhongguo, Guo, but they're not part of Chinese the core notion of Chineseness. I mean, if you well, ask, it's the same thing that that the 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 point about the kid being raised in, in another country. It's like you know, and if you you've we've all read books, you know, that say things like you know, a primitive man had to learn how to master fire, to master the skills of hunting, how to take care of his women and children. And you suddenly realize, oh, the women and children are not really part man. of man. You know, this is a, a separate thing. And it's like the Chinese, the by the Chinese had to do blah blah blah, blah and how to treat their ethnic minorities. Well, here we go. You know, they're not the, the minorities are not really Chinese. And but I mean, you would think about like well, how you become Chinese, becoming Chinese in history. You know, we have these moments where, you know, Chinese civilization moves southward, but it's not necessarily wagon trains loading up in the Yellow River and moving south to the Changjiang and beyond. What we see is, in fact, patterns where certain patterns that we associate with Chinese culture, whether it's patrilineal descent or um, you know, different forms of religious practice or different forms of cultural practice be, are taken over in liminal regions or boundary regions, and then they kind of progressively move to other places. That's right. Yeah. And so when we talk, that's cultural why that's why we're kind of thinking like cultural civilization, because these people are now becoming Han or becoming Chinese, but people not necessarily ethnically or racially in the way that we might understand it in the 20th right. yeah, I mean, century. Look, we, we recognize phenotypical differences today. I mean, you can still see today when somebody is of sort of that that north china plain uh ethnic origin and then somebody from you know from the far south they they, they looked if the bone structure is different you know right. phrenologically they're different <laughs> no i mean uh, <laughs> what if, what if china had what if china for, this is kind of a hypothetical i'm sorry but what, if china were in fact many different countries let's just say that it followed the european experiment and and that was the case you know would we be discussing this because you know if you think about somebody from Guangdong is, is is different from somebody from up here in Beijing as somebody is exactly. from Athens from Athens Greece and Aberdeen Scotland and that they're Scottish and they're Greek, you know I I think that there is there is a lot of construction here because China ends up as a unified country, 
That's that, right. I've made that, that analogy so many times. That's you right. can divide China into very distinctive regions, but and even the, the notion that there is something called the Chinese language is mm. is a nationalistic fantasy. Well, so, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's it's right. It's yeah. the, the fortunate thing, though, that that there was this. Uh, written language that was used by the elites to right. take an examination, which was the singular ladder for social mobility in, in that society. And it was it, it did tend to, to fight against the vociferous tendencies that would otherwise prevail. I, I, I'm sorry, we're, we're actually kind of running short on time here. Let me flick very quickly <clears throat> at a couple of other pieces that I think that people should make sure to read if they're interested in this topic. The, re the works of Frank DeCouter at Hong Kong University on race. Very, very interesting stuff. Right, guys? You guys have all read him. Yeah. I mean, uh, whatever you think of some of his other works, his stuff on, on race is, 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 yeah. is truly fabulous and, and very, very interesting. And, you know, sometimes awfully painful to read as a Chinese person, but it's, 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 a, it's, it's very valuable. Um, and then another is Joseph Eschrich's chapter in um, National, um, Empire to Nation, Historical Perspectives on the Making of the Modern World, uh, the chapter called How the Qing Became China. Uh, Again, Hudson sent us a, 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 a link to that. You've read that before as well. Great stuff, right? Um, did did yeah. Joe Escherich make the list of New Ching scholars that were on on the <laughs> CASS hate list? He, he did not, and and I, you know, I, I think he should he should probably yeah. Yeah. honorary member honorary member honorary member. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Along with yeah, okay. Well, well Mark Elliott and you know and, um, Pavel Crossley and and Jim Millward. Um. So it's uh, unfortunate. I'd love to, to talk about this for another hour. It's it's great. We stuff. didn't cover it all. How I know. Can we stop now. I mean. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I have a I have a con call. I have to get on. <laughs> um, but uh, Jeremy, why don't you start off us? us uh, yeah, Jeremy, why don't you start us off with recommendations? Um, okay, I'd like to recommend something that's sort of uh, somehow vaguely related to this. It's a, <clears throat> a post on a, a blog called Minor Sites, uh, uh, which is subtitled Travel to Amazing Places Overlooked by Guidebooks and Crowds. And it's a post on uh, a museum in France, uh, which has, I think, the world's biggest collection of Greek Buddhas uh, from Gandhara. So oh, wow. Basically, Alexander the Great's... Um, troops uh, arriving in what is now Pakistan, uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan, and bringing their uh, aesthetic and their design and then becoming Buddhist. And I've been to some of the temples on the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan. I don't know if they're still around, but they're rather amazing Buddhist temples that look like Greek temples. Um, right. But there are a lot of the Buddhas actually preserved in a French museum. With the, and the draping, this blog post that, just describes it and gives you directions to the museum if you happen to be in Paris. It's like hand posture and, sh and draping, right? That's that's like the, the giveaway stuff. Uh, yeah, wow, that's great. The Hellenistic stuff. I, I said Hellenic. I meant Hellenistic. Yeah. Right. Great. Uh, Jeremiah, you want to go next? Uh, my recommendation would be, and you you, uh, you mentioned them already, is anytime um, a crazy cast scholar singles you out for, for abuse, that's a that's an endorsement. And I, if people are interested... <laughs> In the in how the Qing became China, I, I highly recommend, you know, reading you know Mark Elliott's The Manchu Way, or uh, James or James Millward's Beyond the Pass, or Pamela Crossley's um, Orphan Warriors. Those are three excellent books on late Qing and Qing history, and I, I they really kind of speak to a lot of these issues in a way that, um, well, it gives certain scholars that cast the rash and unpleasant and unpredictable places. <laughs> Jim Millward, by the way, a shout out to him because he was he was my professor. He was uh, 
when I was a graduate student, and he was one of the, the people who taught me much of what I know. See, today. we have something similar. I, I, I stalk Mark Elliott on social media. Oh, you do? Oh, good. Okay. I don't stalk him. I mean, we've done many bad things together, so we have a bond. Um, David, your turn. Uh, just very quickly, the, the the godfather of all this sort of talk is Lucien Pai. I just recommend anything by him, including The Mandarin and the Catter, which is one of my favorite books. I started underlining brilliant observations in that, and I ended up underlining almost the whole book. So, um, And it doesn't grow old. It's incredible. His, his insights about Chinese culture and this deep DNA questions we're talking about is still still ring true to this day. And he was writing in the 60s. The so. book he wrote on warlord politics is brilliant. Mm. You should read that one. It's, What's it's, it called? I think it's just called Warlord, warlord Politics in China, 1916 to 1928. Yeah, I've got to get I thought I had everything by him, but I get that, yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's great. Uh, I have a recommendation that, that comes to me from um, somebody I don't know only from online, a guy by the name of Tanner Greer. Uh, it's a David Auerbach essay in The American Spectator. It's a very, very long essay. Uh, David Arbach, if you don't know who he is, he writes for for Slate as a uh, a uh, technology columnist. He's brilliant. Did I say Slate? I think it's Salon. I'm, oh, I always mix those up. I know. Also. God damn it. Okay, okay. <laughs> I may be wrong, but anyway, he's great. Um, this article is called "Je ne suis pas libéral: Entering the Quagmire of Online Leftism," and he offers this fascinating typology of of American leftism and tries to explain how it is that the more kind of sort of virulent strains of it are are going against, you know, kind of stodgy old main mainstream left thinking people like, my, you know, liberals like me, good old liberals. Uh, and uh, it's fascinating if you really want to understand. I, I think he he hits on something quite brilliant in the how he typologizes. Um Check it out. It's it's kind of a, a, a way. I mean, it's probably like you know fifteen fucking thousand words long. It's a long, long, long essay, but very well worth it. And with that, I have to say, Kaiser, I think that he, as an engineer, has reconstructed um, you know afresh basically what Marx wrote, uh, just done it in the way that an engineer thinks. But this, I find it very strange that anyone thinks it's odd that left and liberal are are, are different. I mean, they've always been different. That's um, I think in the United that's, States, that's perhaps they, they yeah. get conflated. But um, anyway, yeah. So Jeremy, you did did you make it through the whole article though? I mean, I, I think you, I remember seeing online that you had, you had raised that point, uh, but I think that that was drawn kind of maybe prematurely from the essay. If you if you read on, he goes way beyond way 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 beyond that. He's he knows his marks as well. Believe me, I'm about three quarters through. But yeah, you know. <laughs> okay. Anyway. Uh, thanks, folks. Jeremiah, good to see you, man. Thank you, Kaiser. Thank you, David. Great as usual. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you. And we will see you folks next week on the Cynical Podcast. Mm-hmm.